Great. Uh, good morning, everyone. Thank you, Bert and Robin. Great job, as always. And could you turn your Bibles to Habakkuk chapter 3, verse 1. Habakkuk chapter 3, verse 1. A lot better than last week was, huh, with all the snow and ice, and the sheet of, uh, sheet of ice out in the parking lot. And when I drove up that morning, I was like, oh, gosh. So we, I was thinking, we, we got to get ice skates next time. And so we began skating into, into class. I remember uh, this, the ice storms used to have in Iowa really bad. Reminded me of that. And uh, anyway, so good to have you all with us. We're, gonna, uh, we're moving toward, uh, rapidly toward the end of Habakkuk. And uh, today we'll be looking at Habakkuk chapter 3, verse 10 in the first session, and in verse three, 11 in the second session. And in the first session, we'll be looking at verse 10, as I said, and uh, we're going to be noting three more prophetic statements that are regarding the second advent of Jesus Christ. And so we're continuing to talk about the 70th week of Daniel, the tribulation period. It ends with the second advent of Christ. And of course, you and I, who are the bride of Christ, are going to be accompanying the Lord Jesus Christ at his second advent as we come back uh, from the throne room of God, coming, coming back into, uh, into the earth's atmosphere on planet Earth, the Mount of Olives, and uh, establishing God's kingdom on this earth for a thousand years. So you and I are a part of it, and God wants us to know about this. And this uh, particular section of Habakkuk is, uh, is uh, very uh, interesting. It's a, it's a prophecy, but it's also alluding to some things in the Old Testament, uh, the acts of God, like for the Exodus generation. But it's primarily talking about uh, the, the 70th week of Daniel, the tribulation period, and the second advent of Christ, and verses 3 through 15, and we call it the Divine Warrior Psalm. And uh, it's a lyrics to a song, actually, too. So uh, when they sang this in the temple, in Herod's temple, when Jesus walked in, uh, this song would be played. And of course, I wonder how many people actually knew this was about what he's going to do at his second advent when he establishes the kingdom on earth, God on earth by force. And so, which is kind of interesting, we're doing this, this, uh, this prophecy in verses 3 through 15 of Habakkuk chapter 3 because it, it dovetails with what we're doing on Wednesday evenings uh, with the Day of the Lord series, which is, and we're talking about the 70th week of Daniel and, uh, and uh, the 70 weeks prophecy and the 70th week of Daniel, all those things. We'll be talking about Antichrist. And actually, Antichrist, a reference to his execution by the Lord Jesus Christ, is actually in this Divine Warrior Psalm. It's quite interesting. I can't wait till we teach on it. And uh, the Antichrist, in the next couple of weeks, next month or so, in our Day of the Lord series, we'll be talking a lot about his movements during the tribulation period. So uh, we've got a lot of ground to cover, a lot of stuff to do, a lot of cool stuff. I think you'll find it uh, uh, exciting, enjoyable. Prophecy usually is, and it should motivate us to, to live a godly life now in this life, considering what God's going to do to this earth and establishing his kingdom here on the earth uh, through force, the uh, exercise of his son's omnipotence, the wrath of the Lamb. So uh, also remember we have our uh, prayer meetings coming up, a corporate prayer meeting. We have a corporate prayer meeting every month. It's the last Wednesday of each month, so that falls on the 31st. So at 6 o'clock we have our corporate prayer meeting. If you can make it, great. And some of you probably be at work or still feeding the kids or something. But so if you can make it, make it great. If not, uh, no problem. And uh, also, um, what else was I going to say? The, um, anything I was supposed to remember? I can't. What's that? Communion, thank you. The communion service, I knew it was that. The communion service is coming up next Sunday. Oh, yes, we have our business meeting, too. I know I should write it down huh, at this age. So next week, uh, February 4th, we have uh, the Lord's Supper at the end of, uh, to the end of uh, service. And we'll have only one session of where I'm going to be teaching because in the second session, we're going to have the business meeting. And uh, uh, one of our deacons, uh, Freddie Daniels, is going to be doing that. And so, uh, as he did last year, so that'll be in the second half uh, of the, uh, the second session. So there'll only be one session of me teaching next week. And then the Lord's Supper will be after the business meeting. And also what I'm, I'm going to do at, at, uh, when Fred uh, finishes, I'm going to do a, a little uh, thing about uh, our websites and some of the... Um, so it's, I, do it not to, I do it to encourage you because, you know... Uh, I've mentioned this before. Pastor Peak mentioned it to me, and we—it's like when I joined when, when I joined as, as the pastor here, and so we we basically you inherited what I've got, and I've inherited what you've got, what you guys built here, uh, and uh, so so for instance, the websites—I have several different websites, and when it's—I think you'll find it really fascinating because you know you're supporting uh, you know uh, in the ministry, my my work in the ministry, I'm, I'm, you're a joint partner in the gospel with me. And so 
I want you to see and be encouraged of the outreach that we have around the world. And uh, there's one particular, the, uh, the, where my written articles, Academia EDU, the uh, analytics are really fascinating. And there's, there's, there's people in Russia and China reading our stuff and uh, all over the globe. It's just fascinating. And so it's, I think you'll find it exciting. So I'll try to throw that in there toward the, uh, after Fred has uh, done his presentation and the business meeting. So that'll be next, uh, next week, next Sunday. All right, without further ado, let's take a moment of silent prayer. As is our custom, we take a moment of silent prayer to examine ourselves to determine if we're in fellowship with God because any mental, verbal, or overt act of sin that we knowingly commit will cause us to lose fellowship with the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. But according to 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins to the Father, He, God the Father, is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. In other words, He purifies us from each and every wrongdoing. Now we maintain that fellowship by obeying the Holy Spirit who speaks to us through the Scriptures which He's inspired. And that's when we're obeying the commands of Ephesians 5.18 to be filled with the Spirit and Colossians 3.16 to let the Word of Christ richly dwell in our souls. So if there's anything that's bothering you, disturbing or distracting to you, uh, do not insult God by uh, concentrating on that, thinking about that. Do what 1 Peter 5, 7 says. Cast all your anxieties upon the Lord because he cares for you. So with that in mind, with our heads bowed and our eyes closed, let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for another give, day you've given to us, another Sunday to gather together with members of the body of Christ, the future bride Christ, and study your almighty word, the fellowship in the study of your word, worshiping you through the study of your word. And we pray that today, that uh, this lesson and the first session and the one and the second, and all that goes on uh, during the course of this uh, meeting together, would bring glory to you and your son, Jesus Christ, and minister to your people building each other's faith up in the Word of God, encouraging uh, each other as the draw day is drawing near when you establish your kingdom on the earth. And uh, we thank you for the great blessings that you've given to us because we're in union with your Son, Jesus Christ, and uh, being seated at your right hand and as uh, victors in the angelic conflict. And we know that your Son has achieved the, uh, the, the victory for us, the strategic victory, and we are now getting experience the tactical victories by appropriating by faith our union identification with your son Jesus Christ and considering yourselves dead to this in nature and alive to God and raised and seated at your right hand because that's how you view us father and we have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus and also father we because of this union with your son Jesus Christ and we're seated at your right hand we also now have this intercessory ministry that we have not only for each other but for uh, the, the non-believers in our society, around us in our periphery, and of course, the leaders of our country. So Father, we, we'd like to exercise that uh, royal priesthood and that intercessory prayer ministry on behalf of our nation. I pray, Father, for uh, President Biden and his staff, his cabinet, and his family, and our military leaders, executive, judicial, legislative branches of our federal, state, and local government, those involved in uh, covert operations and those are part of paramilitary organizations like the police. We lift up the Huntsville Police Department who are protecting us from the enemy within. And uh, we just pray that you would give our leaders the wisdom and the moral uh, courage to lead this country. I just pray, Father, that you would uh, uh, raise up more people to influence policy that have a godly perspective, divine viewpoint. And uh, we know that you've done this in the past with your great servant, Daniel, and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, people like that. And we know that you can uh, influence the, the rulers of this world uh, with uh, your, your children. So, Father, we pray for that. I also uh, pray that this church in America and around the world, especially here in America, now with the election coming up and all the controversy surrounding it building up, I just pray that you would uh, impress upon your people to pray for their leaders. And I pray for those who are the candidates uh, in this upcoming election. And uh, I just pray, Father, that your will would be done with regards to it. 
I also pray for this lesson today. I pray, Father, for today. Help me to, by the power of the Spirit, to communicate your full counsel to your people with accuracy and clarity, reverence, respect, and power. Help me to be sensitive to the Spirit's guidance and direction. I pray that uh, it would be very evident that the Spirit is using me to communicate your word to your people, and I pray that you would be lifted up in your Son, Jesus Christ. I pray that also that everyone in this audience, all your children through the Spirit, will be able to learn to understand and concentrate and carefully consider the passages that we'll be noting, the principles that we'll be noting in order to make personal application. So I, as a result, I pray that they would receive their necessary spiritual nourishment, which would allow them to continue to grow in this great salvation that you've accomplished for us through your Son and the Spirit. And I just pray, Father, for this service in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ's name, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Amen. So, as I said before the opening prayer, we're going to continue this divine warrior psalm that's found in Habakkuk chapter 3, verses 3 through 15. And then the very end of the book is uh, basically a great passage by uh, uh, speaking, uh, Habakkuk himself speaking, uh, expressing his great faith, despite the fact that his nation was about to be destroyed by the kingdom of Babylon. So quickly, by way of review, it's only three chapters long, this book. This book is a, as we pointed out, is uh, if you're new to the study, just popping in. Uh, and people from listening to the podcast are out in websites. They, there are a lot of people popping in that are new. So this is for them primarily. A lot of you know what I'm going to say, and some of you won't. But uh, we see this book as a dialogue, very unusual book. It's a dialogue between Habakkuk, the prophet, who appears to be a Levitical priest and a musician, because this uh, is a, uh, he's, it's basically lyrics to a song, uh, this uh, divine warrior psalm, and it's poetry. And so we see that this, uh, this man has dialogue with God and he's complaining to God. Right at the beginning of the book, the first four verses, he's complaining to God about the, the, uh, the behavior, the ungodly, unrepentant behavior of his people who are in a covenant relationship with God, believers who are in apostasy. And he was complaining about that God hadn't done anything about it. Well, he was, uh, he was right in tune with God because God was going to do something about it. And so he told Habakkuk that in verses uh, 5, uh, through 11, he said that he was going to use the Babylonian Empire, who lived about a thousand miles away from them, and uh, nobody had seen an army march that far to destroy another nation, but that's exactly what God was going to do. And so then Habakkuk responds to this in verses 12 through 17, uh, expressing his dismay and actually his revulsion that God would use a pagan nation to, dis- to uh, discipline his nation, which was in a covenant relationship with him. And so uh, what we see is, and not only was, uh, uh, this is predicted by Jeremiah as well, that Nebuchadnezzar would be used by God as his instrument, even though he was a pagan ruler at the time, to destroy not only uh, the, the southern kingdom of Judah, but also the various nations in the, in the uh, Mediterranean and Mesopotamian regions of the world that were in unrepentant idolatry. And God had put up with that idolatry even among his people for, cent- uh, for generation after generation. So finally, God brought the hammer down. He brought judgment down, even though he wanted them to repent. And just like we know that, because you look at the story of Nineveh with Jonah, in the book of Jonah, a book we'll do in the future, uh, the Ninevites were not, uh, the Ninevites were in the same ilk as the, as the Babylonians. And so uh, we see that God, uh, because they repented, relented and didn't destroy that nation, at that, that city at that time. So these nations didn't repent, so God brought in the Babylonian Empire, and God used evil, and he still does this today, people. He's been doing it. This is how he rules the world. Yes, Satan is the god of this world temporarily, but he's accountable to to the Lord Jesus Christ, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. But uh, when a nation, uh, let's say uh, you see in the past, Nebuchadnezzar's Babylon, Medo-Persia that followed it, Alexander's Greece, the Roman Empire, uh, God will eventually, uh, Hitler's uh, Germany, the Empire of Japan, uh, what God does is he uses, one, a lot of times he'll use one evil nation to destroy another evil nation. In fact, you've got to think about this. He's the God of this world and all the nations of the earth have an evil ruler, spirit, uh, Satan, one of Satan's military that's ruling over the nation. In fact, our nation is ruled over by a demon officer as well. That's true of every single nation on the face of the globe. And the only nation that doesn't have that is Michael, the elect angel. So in other words, you and I as the church are behind enemy lines. And that's why they wage war against us. We can be the preservative of this nation. We might be the, the positive volition that's in the country, which is dwindled. Uh, it could be the reason this small remnant of believers, this pivot of believers, could be the reason why God hasn't destroyed our own nation for the evil that it, it has committed. 
So this book, Habakkuk, is a, is a warning, not only to the nations of that time, in the 6th century B.C., but also a warning to the nations today. Because God will destroy one nation, evil nation, with another evil nation. He uses evil to destroy evil. That's what he did at the cross. They were, Satan did not want Jesus to go to the cross. He knew it was the end for him. And that's why he sent Pilate's wife a dream so that he goes, she goes to Pilate and have nothing to do with that righteous man. And they were trying to kill him before he can get to the cross. And we see that he couldn't control sinful humanity. It's, he, he basically, his causing the human race to fall came back to bite him in the rear end again because he couldn't control them in the end, and he didn't want them to crucify him, that they crucified him, and that was according to the predetermined counsel of God, so he used evil men, evil people, sinners, fallen angels, whatever they, they did, whatever they wanted to do to Jesus, and guess what? That destroyed the works of the devil by put, put, put executing him unjustly and getting what they wanted, what eventually it, it turned into to be the destruction of Satan's world system. And it's, it's, going, it's coming to an end. So we see in chapter 2, after the Babylonian Empire, uh, Habakkuk expresses his dismay over this. Okay? He's, talking back, he's talking to God, and he's doing it respectfully, as we pointed out. But he's concerned about this. But God comes back to him in chapter 2. And it echoes, I'd say Jeremiah 51 echoes Habakkuk, because I think this was wrote, written definitely before Jeremiah wrote 50, chapter 51 of his book, is that God is going to destroy Babylon. And that's exactly what he, he wanted, uh, Habakkuk wanted to hear. Justice is served. So this is a, brings out the principle we studied in the first two chapters, the principle lex teleonis. Eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, you've heard it said? Well, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth simply means, it means that, the punishment must fit the crime. So recently somebody got executed here in, in Alabama. Kudos for the state of Alabama putting to ex, uh, executing criminals because that's what the civil, civil government was created for in the beginning. Read Genesis 9 and Romans 13. So when a government, and state governments and the federal government were putting away the death penalty, there's blood on the land. There's blood on our land and God's not happy about it. What do you think he's going to do? Well, look at what he's done in the past. So, you know, I want, we should be praying that the people who run for office would have a, have a, a respect for a God's word in the sense that he requires uh, the, the murderer to be put to death. After a jury of his peers have found him guilty, he must be executed. God says that in Genesis 9. So, we see that Babylon, Babylon will be destroyed, and that was fulfilled with the Medo-Persian Empire. Daniel predicted it in Daniel chapter 2. <clears throat> he predicted it in Daniel chapter 7. And so we see Babylon is that it would be destroyed at the hands of the Medo-Persian Empire in 536 B.C., as we read in Daniel chapter 5, when the knight Belshazzar had the handwriting on the wall and basically said, you're done. God was telling me you're done, to paraphrase it. And that night he was killed. He was executed. The Medo-Persian Empire went in there and without a shot being fired, they got underneath the city. Herodotus tells the story, and they cut off the water supply, and they were able to get into the city without even a shot being fired, and they just took them by surprise. Didn't take Daniel by surprise. So then you get to chapter 3, and you see Habakkuk expressing his faith toward the Lord, and he gets this tremendous uh, prophecy of the divine warrior song, and the divine warrior concept or motive, we call it, is found throughout Scripture. You find it from all the way through Scripture. In fact, you see it all the way in Revelation. You see Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, who took away the sins of the world. He's also the Lion of Judah, and he is a great, great warrior. He's superior to all the great captains of history, Napoleon, Julius Caesar, Alexander the Great, Nebuchadnezzar, Patton, MacArthur, you name it, he's better than all of them. He's superior to all. He's the king ruling over the kings and the Lord ruling over the lords and he's the general of all generals. And he's going to come back and destroy this planet with violence. That's right. With violence. Read the Bible. You might not like that side of Jesus, but you know what? Now's the time to kiss the Savior, as it says in the book of Psalms, to the nations and the rulers of this nation. And, and Psalm chapter 2, and the nations are shaking their fist at him. 
where their ungodly concepts and their, their godless communism and their godless socialism and their godless capitalism and their godless rejecting of God with a sexual, uh, the, the LBGT, whatever it's called, whatever they call themselves, the gay and the lesbian movement, whatever you want to call it, the woke thing, it's all unbiblical, it's all against God, it's shaking his fist at God, and what do you think he's going to do? Now, you and I keep that in mind because at the same time, Jesus Christ died for all those godless people at the cross of Calvary, just like he did you and I. So our job is to live this spiritual life, to love one another. John 13, 34, as God, the Lord Jesus Christ loved us sacrificially and all that involves, by this all people will know we're disciples of Jesus. This is where true love resides, is in the church of Jesus Christ. So we need to be an example in our behavior and the way we treat each other and this will lead people to the Savior. Our words are hollow if our behavior stinks and is ungodly. We lose our testimony. And so we're trying to call, God's trying to call out a people for himself right now as we speak. Started on the day of Pentecost in June of 33 AD with the Jewish disciples of Jesus, trusting in Jesus, and they received the baptism of the Spirit. And then the, the great Cornelius, the, the Roman centurion, was the first, and him and his family were the first of the Gentiles to receive the baptism of the Spirit at their justification. And now that means that Jews and Gentiles who believe in Jesus during the church age, which ends with the rapture, which is imminent, are in union with Jesus Christ. They're crucified died, buried, raised, and seated with him. You're in a place of authority now. You're the bride of Christ. You're going to come back at the second advent, which ends the tribulation period, the times of the Gentiles, and we're going to reign with Christ. At that time at the second advent, as we'll see, and we've seen it in the past, the, Jesus Christ is not only going to kill the Antichrist and the false prophet and destroy the tribulation armies that will be amassed in Israel, that little piece of land right now, Amassed massive armies, and we have this Armageddon campaign that will find its culmination in the second advent of Christ. And he will not only destroy Antichrist and the tribulation armies, the false prophet, but he's also going to imprison Satan and, the, and, his, and his evil fellow evil spirits. He's going to imprison them for a thousand years. Paul said to the Corinthians, don't you know that you're going to judge angels? How can we do it? We're in, we're in union with Christ. God the Father looks at you as he looks at his son. Not the second member of the Trinity, but in the, as his bride. We're members of his body. Did we earn it or deserve this? No. So here, God wants you to know what the future is. A husband tells his bride, his wife, what his plans are. And they share their plans with each other. There's an intimacy you are in an intimate relationship with the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And he wants you to know what he's about to do this world. One, to motivate us to live a godly life, to live in a life that's consistent with who God made us to be at our justification and what he's going to do for us by putting us in a resurrection body with rewards of faithful service. In light of what he's done for us in the past, what he's going to do for us in the future, and what he's doing for us now. He wants us to live our lives that pleases him, living for his, to do his will, not my will, but your will be done, Father, adopting the very attitude that his son had. That's what we're here for. And by this, maybe we can snatch, maybe we can snatch people out from the flames of eternal condemnation. Maybe just we can take a few out, can come with us, maybe more. We don't know what God has planned. And we're in the, we're in the, we're in the I think that God has got us here and one of the greatest cities in the world right now. And I'm not blowing smoke at you all. This is the place. This is in the center of the military-industrial complex of the greatest power, superpower the world has ever seen. And we're right in the middle of it. And there's people from all over the world that come in here. And we need to be ready. And so it doesn't mean, just it might not mean that they're going to come right within these four walls, every single one of them. But you run into these people in your daily lives where you go and work where I can't go. But you see them, and you can reach them, and you can touch them, and you're God's, you're God's instrument that he can use. So Habakkuk chapter 3, verses 3 through 15, that great divine warrior psalm is just fascinating. And you know what's been, before we get to read the text, what's fascinating is the greatest victory 
military, very greatest conquest of all time of the divine warrior was at the cross of Calvary. Within weakness, a God, God the Son became a human being, and in weakness, he defeated the great foe, Satan, the devil, the serpent, the one who, who deceived Adam and Eve and caused us all to be plunged into sin and enslaved slavery to sin and Satan and his cosmic system. And in weakness, he was crucified. He was abandoned by his heavenly father, suffering the wrath of God in our place so that we wouldn't suffer the wrath of God forever in the lake of fire. He lived a life of perfect obedience to the law that we couldn't do. And guess what? That accomplished the victory over the devil. And he's going to clean it up at the second advent. He's going to, he's going to, he's going to establish the kingdom on earth, dispossessing Satan and the fallen angels. So we're reading in Habakkuk 3, verses 3 to 15, about this period of the tribulation period, the 70th week of Daniel. So, uh, and, and it ends with the second advent of Christ. So let's look at Habakkuk chapter 3, look at verse 1. As we, as we usually do, we'll read the whole chapter, then look at verse 10, our passage in the first session, exclusively for the rest of the class. But we want to pay attention to the context in which Habakkuk 3.10 is found. Because as I said many times before, uh, false teachers, false prophets, uh, cults, they are notorious for doing this. So it says in Habakkuk 3.1, a prayer of Habakkuk the prophet, Ashigayana, Lord, I have heard of your fame. I stand in awe of your deeds, O Lord. Renew them in our day. And he would and he did. In our time, make them known. In wrath, remember mercy. Now comes the psalm. God came from Teman, the Holy One from Mount Paran, Selah. His glory covered the heavens and his praise filled the earth. That talks about him going down in a place, what we call today the kingdom of Jordan. And now down there, he comes up. And it says, and compare this with Isaiah 63, 1 through 3. And he has, he has blood on his garments. And they asked him, you're going to ask him, where did you get these, this blood all over your garments? He's from my enemies. That's in his second advent. He'll have the blood of his enemies spattered on his garments. Verse 4, his splendor. Was, uh, was like the sunrise. His rays flashed from his hand where his power was hidden. Plague went before him. The seven seal trumpeted bold judgments we've been looking at and we'll look at in detail in our Day of the Lord series. He stood and shook the earth and he looked and made the nations tremble. And the ancient mountains crumbled and the age-old hills collapsed. His ways are eternal. I saw the tents of Cushion in distress and the dwells of, dwellings of Midian in anguish. Were you angry with the rivers, O Lord? Was your wrath against the streams? Did you rage against the sea when you rode with your horses and your victorious chariots? You uncovered your bow. You called for many arrows, Selah. You split the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and writhed. Torrents of water swept by in the deep roared, and it lifted its waves on high. Sun and moon stood still in the heavens at the glint of your flying arrows, at the lightning of your flashing spear. In, in wrath you strode the earth, and in anger you threshed the nations. You came out to deliver your people, to save your anointed one. You crushed the leader of the land of wickedness. That's the Antichrist's execution. You stripped him from head to foot, Selah. With his own spear you pierced his head when his warriors stormed out to scatter us, the Jewish people, during that time of the tribulation period, gloating as though about to devour the wretched who were in hiding. You trampled the sea with your horses, churning the great waters. And, of course, that's great waters, is, as we'll see, a reference, a, a figurative reference, a metaphorical reference to the nations, the, the, the uh, unregenerate peoples of this earth. We see the same kind of imagery and language in Revelation 13. Then we have the end of the psalm, and now we have uh, Habakkuk expressing his faith and rejoicing despite the fact that his nation's going to be destroyed. It's on the eve of destruction here, but he's going to rejoice anyways because God's will will be done, and he's going to place all his, uh, hang his hat on the Lord and his faithfulness to him rather than his circumstances. And I heard and my heart pounded, my lips quivered at the sound, decay crept into my bones, and my legs trembled. Yet I will wait patiently for the day of calamity to come on the nation invading us, Babylon. And it did come in 539 B.C. Though the fig tree does not bud. Remember, they were an agricultural economy in the southern kingdom of Judah. And there are no grapes on the vines. Though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food. Though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Savior. The sovereign Lord is my strength. This is why he rejoices. He makes me feel like my feet like the feet of a deer, and he enables me to go on the heights. 
And then he says, and this tells you he's a musician and a, and a songwriter, for the music, director of music on my stringed instruments. Now, let me give you my translation of Habakkuk 3.10. Having seen you, the mountains will tremble in fear. A torrential rain of waters will sweep through. The deep will raise its voice and it will lift its hands on high. Now, this is, again, verses 3 through 15, and this verse included, of course, is speaking of the second advent to Christ, which ends the 70th week of Daniel. Uh, quickly, I'll show you on the board, the 70th week of Daniel, we're doing this in detail. But the 70th, 70 weeks of Daniel is actually 490 prophetic years. It's found in Daniel 9, 24 through 27. It's basically the prophetic outline of the Bible. So basically, it started in, in, in 444 B.C. with Antiochus Epiphanes, uh, not Antiochus Epiphanes, uh, uh, we see that it was by a Persian ruler, and it was in 444 B.C., and that started the 70 weeks prophecy. And a week in this prophecy is seven years, so 490 prophetic years, so 69 of which have been fulfilled already in history. Uh, the 69th week, the 483rd prophetic year, end with Christ's triumphal entry into Jerusalem to present himself as the Messiah. So that ended the 69th week. The 70th week has not begun yet because it's waiting for Antichrist to make a treaty with it, the nation of Israel. He can't appear and make that treaty until the church is removed. Paul says this clearly in First and Second Thessalonians. Probably the next two books we'll do after Habakkuk. And he, he says in First Thessalonians 5, 9, we're delivered from the wrath to come. But in Second Thessalonians 2, he says that the restrainer, who's a reference to the Holy Spirit, indwells the church, must be removed and that'll happen at the rapture, and then Antichrist can manifest himself. And he'll be a Roman dictator. The passage says that. He's from the people who destroyed Jerusalem and the temple, and that was the Romans in 70 AD. So the, right now, we're in the interval between the 69th and the 70th week, and the church age is found in that. There's other events that took place between this period. The crucifixion of Christ, as predicted in Daniel 9.26, fulfilled in history. Also, the, uh, the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem, Herod's temple, and the city of Jerusalem in 70 AD by the Romans. All of those were predicted in Daniel 9.26, as we saw last Wednesday in our class. The church age began in June of 33 AD, okay? And the day of Pentecost, as recorded in Acts chapter 2, it ends with the rapture, the resurrection of the church, which is imminent. It could happen at any time. That's when we get our resurrection bodies and we're perfected, okay? And then comes the Bema seat following after that where we get rewards for faithful service if we merit them. And then we go to the presence of the Father. And then that's the, that's the, the marriage is consummated there. Following the Jewish custom of marriage where the bridegroom, where he'd be engaged to his bride and uh, he would uh, come back and he would come back in an hour at, uh, to pick her up to take her, take her back to his, his father's house and then consummate the marriage. Okay? He's follow, that's following the Jewish custom of marriage. And then the wedding supper, the celebration is the millennial reign of Christ. And that's on the earth. And we are the bridegroom. And John the Baptist says he and the Old Testament saints are friends of the bridegroom. So this period, and I'll show you another chart of the 70th week on the board here, the chart I put up together for you. So we see, here's the rapture you see up here, but Antichrist treaty with Israel, that happens right after we're gone, and then it ends with the second advent of Christ. During the last three and a half years, which began with Antichrist breaking this treaty, as it says in Daniel 9.27 and Revelation 13, we see that this, in Matthew 24, that three, it'll be a three and a half year campaign. It's called Armageddon. It's a military campaign. It's not a pitched battle like Waterloo, Okay. And it ends with the second advent of Christ. And Jesus is going to be, uh, he's going to show he, that he is the greatest captain of all time. And he won the victory over Satan at the cross in his weakness. And the power of God was manifested in his weakness. But he's going to manifest his power. And he'll be, it'll be a total contrast of, uh, uh, of the second advent. will be totally in contrast to the first advent. So now's the time of salvation. Now's the time to make your peace with God and be delivered from the wrath to come, not only in the wrath of lake of fire, but also during the tribulation period. So we see that Habakkuk chapter 3, in our study of the first uh, verses 3 through 9 of Habakkuk chapter 3, verses 3 through 19 is a prayer, which the prophet Habakkuk offered up to the Father, the God of Israel, which he directed to be sung in the temple as part of the worship of the God of Israel. Now he also noted uh, in verses 3 through 9 of our study of those verses, that verses 3 through 15 
is actually not only prophetic, uh, referring to the events of the 70th week of Daniel and the second advent of Christ, but also alluding at times to the mighty acts of God which he performed on behalf of the nation of Israel in her past, such as the Exodus generation and destruction of Egypt and Pharaoh and his army. We also noted in detail that we, this is an eschatological interpretation, a prophetic interpretation of verses 3 through 15. It's primarily dealing with the future. Now, Habakkuk 3.10, as you can see in my translation and in your Bibles, Habakkuk 3.10, my translation, having seen you, the mountains will tremble with fear, a torrential rain of waters will sweep through, uh, the deep will raise its voice, and it will lift its hands on high. So we got four prophetic statements in this verse. Each of these prophetic statements contains the figure of a syndeton. And that simply means there's no connected word between all of them. Do you see the and, or, now, or but type of words there? None. The writer's doing this deliberately. He's being very solemn. He wants you to know how serious this is. And as I said before, he wants the world to know how serious this is. He wants, you to, he wants the world, the leaders of the world in this country and the, all around the globe to know this. The purpose of this figure is to emphasize the solemn nature of each of these prophetic statements. Three of these prophetic statements are using what we call the figure of personification. We see this used quite a bit in the Old Testament. And that simply is the ascribing of human characteristics to any inanimate object, abstract concept, or impersonal being, or to animals. Now, the first prophetic statement, as you can see on the board and in your Bibles, solemnly asserts that the mountains will tremble, and they'll tremble in fear after having seen the Lord God of Israel, who is going to be the Lord Jesus Christ. And this prophetic statement will be fulfilled at his second advent, since Habakkuk chapter 3, verses 3 through 15, contains prophecy, which will be fulfilled during the 70th week of Daniel and the second advent of Christ. And the purpose of this figure of personification in this statement is to emphasize with the reader, the tremendous power and presence of the Lord Jesus Christ when he returns to earth at his second advent. Now, this prophecy is related to the third prophetic statement in Habakkuk 3.6, which asserts that the ancient mountains will disintegrate. Remember that passage we studied in detail, Habakkuk 3.6, my translation on the board, he will stand, speaking of Jesus in the future, while he causes the earth to shake. He will look while he causes the citizens of the nations to tremble in fear while the ancient mountains will disintegrate. The primeval hills will be flattened. Ancient processions assist him. Angels, elect angels will accompany him, and they're going to remove every unbeliever off the face of the earth at his second advent. Now, the fifth statement, as we see in Habakkuk 3.6, asserts that the ancient mountains will disintegrate, which constitutes the third prophetic statement in this verse. It's interesting. Revelation 6.14 teaches that when the sixth seal judgment is broken, every mountain will be moved from its place. We saw this last week. Also, Revelation 16, 17 through 20 teaches that when the seventh bowl judgment takes place, it will result in the second advent of Christ and an unprecedented earthquake will occur so that the mountains cannot be found. The seventh bowl judgment, it's the final bowl judgment, is recorded in Revelation 16, 17 through 21, and it's poured out into the Earth's atmosphere, resulting in an unprecedented earthquake, the greatest to ever take place on the Earth since man has been on it. And this massive worldwide earthquake will reduce the cities of the Gentiles, America, China, Peking, New York, Washington, London, wherever you go, every city on the planet, Every nation will be affected by this. This massive worldwide earthquake will reduce the cities of the Gentiles to rubble. And it'll actually change the topography of the earth. And it will also result in tremendous, tremendous tsunamis. And so this seventh pole judgment, which results in this unprecedented massive worldwide earthquake, completes God's judgment for the final three and a half years of Daniel's 70th week. And it will result in the second advent of Christ. In other words, Satan's masterpiece... We are living in, behind enemy lines. You heard me say that. We're the bride of Christ. He hates the church. Satan wages war against the church. You think about Israel, yes, but he's, the, the, his enemy that's active now is us. Okay? Once we're gone, now he's, gonna, he's really going to concentrate on Israel. 
But right now, it's the church is the focal point of his efforts. Read Revel uh, Ephesians 6, 10 through 18. Our enemy is not flesh and blood, our fellow human beings. It's not President Biden or President Trump or uh, the guy in China or Putin. Okay, it's Satan and his angels who are the reason why we're in a mess that we're in, along with the sinners in this world, us being included, that the world's in a mess. So Satan's masterpiece that we're living in the midst of, that's right, that's totally antithetical to God, opposed to God. That's why we have policies in our country and around the world. That's why we have godless communism, godless socialism, godless capitalism. It's because we're in the devil's world. That's why. You have to understand that. Because then you can empathize with the people of the world who used to be like us, enslaved to sin and Satan and his cosmic system, and show compassion for them like Jesus did on the cross and give them the gospel. Befriend them. They need to be delivered from it just like we needed to be delivered from it. So at his second advent, the Lord Jesus Christ will bring to an end the times of the Gentiles, which we're pleasantly in. And the times of the Gentiles actually began with Nebuchadnezzar's invasion of the southern kingdom of Judah. So he had three of them, 605, 597, and 586 B.C. That began the times of the Gentiles. It will end with the second advent of Christ. Times of the Gentiles means that the Gentile powers, like the United States, Britain, China, Russia, all the Gentile nations of the past, great empires, it's their time to rule. And they're, in, they're deceived by the devil, by the way. One day at the second advent, which we're going to be a part of, the kingdom will be started on earth and Israel will be the head of the nations. Okay? We'll be head of the nations and Christ will reign in her as king over the nations and all the Gentile nations and the powers will be subjugated to Israel and her king Jesus Christ and we're his bride. Composed of both Jew and Gentiles. Male and female. Slave and free man. Okay? All one in Christ. So at a second advent, the Lord Jesus Christ will bring to an end the times of the Gentiles and the 70th week of Daniel and thus ex the exercise of God's righteous indignation during the last three and a half years of the 70th week. Now, so remember, as we saw in Revelation 6, the seventh seal trumpet and the seventh seal scroll, the title is the title deed to planet Earth, as we saw in Revelation 5. No one was found worthy. No angel, elect angel, no human being on the earth, under the earth, or in heaven. Was, able to, was worthy to open it. That means that an angel are not... They're, they're in, they're, they were in rough shape like we. They fell too, in other words. Because if there was one worthy, they would have been broken. It. They would have broken it. But no one was, only the lamb. And that's the title deed to the planet Earth that he got back with his crucifixion, death, burial, resurrection, session of the right hand of the Father. And so when he, when he, broke, he breaks those seal, that seal, the seventh seal... That is going to plunge the world into chaos that nobody's ever seen the likes of. In fact, if he doesn't come back with us at the second advent, no flesh should be left alive. The human race will be gone. That's what Jesus said. So the seven seal trumpet and bold judgments express the wrath of Jesus Christ and the Father against the world that's opposed to him, who are children of the devil. The second advent is not the rapture. There's two comings. One is for the church to deliver her from the wrath to come, the tribulation period. That's the first coming of Christ, but it, the whole world doesn't see it. It's only the church does. It's the time the church gets its resurrection body, and he's pulling us off because now it's time to administer the judgment of the nations, to establish his kingdom on the earth with Israel as the head of the nations. The second advent is preceded by signs. The rapture is not. There's no signs preceding the rapture. Don't use Matthew 24, because that's all about this, the tribulation period and the second advent of Christ. It has nothing to do with the church. The church is not mentioned. It's mentioned one, in Matthew 16. Okay? Upon this rock, I will build my church future. Okay? And he starts talking about it, Jesus does, and the rapture for the first time in John's Gospel 13 through 17. That's when he starts talking about the mystery doctrine for the church age. And he talks about the rapture for the first time in, God, in John's Gospel 14, verses 1 through 3. The rapture delivers the church from the tribulation period. It's invisible to the world. And 
the second advent, every person will see Jesus Christ. He will orbit the earth with us and the elect angels and the Old Testament saints and resurrection bodies, tribulational martyrs and all and resurrection bodies. And we'll re every eye shall see him, Revelation 1, 7, Jesus, uh, Paul, John says. Every eye shall see him. That's the second advent. As far as the, you know, when I lived in Iowa, as I told you, they could see the horizon. You could see, you could see storms coming up, squall lines. It was unbelievable the first time I saw it because in Massachusetts, there were trees everywhere. Well, I saw electrical storms at night. That just reminded me of this. And one, the light, as lightning would flash across the sky to the other, to east to west, that's how the second coming of Christ will be. You will be no mistaking about it. And the world that's been shaking their fist at him will be terrified. Because he's the alien that they're all talking about in the movies that they want to destroy. Because he's going to be the alien, we're all with him. And guess what? Us aliens are going to take over the planet. Because one day we're going, to be the, we're going to be up there and we'll be aliens and we'll be extraterrestrials someday and they're going to destroy, seek to destroy us but they have no chance against beings that are in resurrection bodies and of course when Jesus Christ, the God-man with his omnipotence exercising it, he will wipe every, every one of his enemies off the face of the earth. There will also be a national regeneration of the nation of Israel at the second advent. He will also destroy the tribulation armies, as I said. He'll have Antichrist, the false prophet, thrown in the lake of fire. And also he will imprison Satan for a thousand years and will establish his kingdom, his millennial reign on the earth. At that time, the Lord and his armies, as I said, will orbit the earth, landing before landing on the Mount of Olives, from which he ascended, Acts 1, chapter 1. And there will be a great earthquake when our Lord's foot touches the Mount of Olives, as we saw in, in Habakkuk 3.6. Zechariah talks about this in Zechariah chapter 14, 1 through 8. And it will be a unique day with neither day or night, as it says in Zechariah 14, 7. We will light the planet. There'll be no need for the sun and the moon to light planet Earth at that time because you'll have beings, you'll have elect angels in their glory. You'll have the church in its resurrection bodies decorated with rewards in their glory. And you'll have Jesus himself, and you'll have the tribulational martyrs and their resurrection bodies, Old Testament saints like Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Daniel, guys like that, in their resurrection bodies, Moses. And we're going to light the planet up. There'll be no need for the light of the sun and the moon. And it'll be a unique day in history for a unique person, the God-man, Jesus Christ, the unique, theanthropic person of history. And so the Lord Jesus Christ describes the tribulation period in detail in his second advent in Matthew 24, verses 29 through 31, and also Luke chapter 21, verses 25 through 28. So therefore, people, a comparison of the first prophetic statement in Habakkuk 3.10 with the third prophetic statement in Habakkuk 3.6 indicates that the mountains will tremble in fear after seeing Jesus Christ at his second advent because they were about to be disintegrated by the omnipotence of the Lord. Uh, look at uh, Revelation chapter 19. Look at verse 1. Revelation 19.1. Revelation chapter 19, verse 1. As I've said many times uh, in this ministry since I've been here and also uh, the Winston Bible Ministries over the years, last 25 years, wherever it is now, Revelation is easy to outline. And you got to know your Old Testament. Otherwise, you got to know Daniel. you got to know Zechariah. Otherwise, you ain't going to understand Revelation. But you see, in the first three chapters, the church is on earth. The seven churches of Asia, John's on the earth. But then, all of a sudden, in chapter 4 of Revelation, he's told to come up to heaven. Chapters 4 and 5 is the church in heaven. That's a picture of the rapture. Then, chapters 6 through 18, when he's... Jesus is pouring out the seven seal trumpet and bull judgments upon a Christ-rejecting world. You have no mention of the church anywhere. Show me. I'll challenge any scholar. It's easy. There's no mention of the church anywhere in these chapters because it's the 70th week of Daniel and we're gone. That's why. But all of a sudden, you get to chapter 19, guess who shows up when the second advent's appearing, taking place? The church in heaven coming back with Jesus. Look what it says in Revelation 19.1. After this, I heard what sounded like the roar of a great multitude in heaven shouting, Hallelujah! 
Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for true and just are his judgments. He has condemned the great prostitute who corrupted the earth by her adulteries. He has avenged on her the blood of his servants. And again they shouted, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. And the 24 elders, which represent the church, and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God who was seated on the throne. And they cried, Amen! Hallelujah! Then a voice came from the throne saying, Praise our God! All you his servants who fear him, both small and great. Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters, and like peals, loud peals of thunder, shouting, Hallelujah, for our God, the Lord God Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory, for the wedding of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. That's us. Read Ephesians 5, 22 to the end of the chapter, we are the bride of Christ. We were a mystery not known to Old Testament saints that his bride would be composed of both Jewish and Gentile believers who are co-heirs, fellow heirs, fellow uh, partaker, uh, members of the body of Christ and fellow partakers of the Messianic promise through faith in Jesus at justification and the baptism of the Spirit. So here we are, the bride, we've made ourselves ready. We got our resurrection bodies, and we got rewards for those who got them at the Bamacy who merited them for faithful service. Fine linen and bright and clean were given to her to wear. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of the saints. And then the angel said to me, Right, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb, because that's the millennial reign. And he added, These are the true words of God. At this I fell at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, Do not do it. I'm your fellow servant, because he's an angel. And with your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus, worship God, he says, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Then we have uh, the, uh, the Lord Jesus Christ descending with his church, the Old Testament saints, tribulational martyrs, elect angels, coming and descending from the throne room of God, the third heaven, coming through the stellar universe and entering the earth's atmosphere. I saw heaven standing open, and there was before me a white horse whose rider is faithful and true. With justice he judges and make, makes war, wages war. His eyes, this is apocalyptic liter, uh, literature, language, used for historical prophetic events, uh, prophetic events that are going to happen, and his uh, people who will be on the stage of world history, like the Lord Jesus Christ. His eyes are a blazing, like a blazing fire that talks about he's here for judgment. And on his head are many crowns. He's the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He has a name written on him that no one knows but himself because he's the unique God-man of history. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood. And his name is the Word of God. The armies of heaven were following him. And that's us. Remember, when the saints come marching in, guess what? You want to be in that number? Trust in Jesus as your Savior and you're in. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses, dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Out of his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. Figurative language, apocalyptic language, for the fact that when he opens his mouth and makes a command, boom. Look at in the gospel. Look in the gospels when he issued, he, he, Lazarus, come forth. The power to raise from the dead, the same man. The same God-man, the same Son of God who created the time matter space continuum were just speaking into his existence. This is, where he, this is who we have. This is our God. This is the God that we trust in and we come here to worship. This is the God that we lift up. This is the God we obey. This is the God we have faith in. And this is what we're going to put our, hang our hat on when the world crumbles around us. We got him. When it's time to die, you got him. He's the one, he should be, everything should be about him in your life. Every decision you make, all your priorities, must keep him, him in mind, because he's our everything. Out of his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads down, the, treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has this name written, King of Kings, Lord of Lords, and the, and, the, and the word kings and lords there are in the genitive case, and it talks about, it's a genitive of subordination in the Greek grammar. It means king ruling over kings. The, king, the Lord ruling over the lords. Everybody is submitted to him. Everybody is subjugated to him, whether they like it or not. And you and I are married to him. We're members of his body. God wants you to know this. 
He wants the church in America to know this and around the world because it's not being, the, the many pastors are not being good stewards with the word of God and telling the body of Christ who they are because the devil does not want you to know who you are. You're dangerous. You're a bunch of little Jesus rolling around. And if you get wind of the fact of who you are and stop feeling bad about yourself, or I don't, I'm not good looking enough, I don't have, I'm not looking like Brad Pitt or, or Raquel Welch, I don't have any money. You know, I'm poor, I'm destitute, nobody loves me, I'm not married, don't have any kids, I'm married to a witch, I'm married to a jerk, okay? It doesn't matter! You are in union with Christ, everybody, you in this room should know that. And now Gail's going to do a dance and celebrate for that too. She knows what we're talking about here. So that's what we need to know. And I saw an angel standing in the sun who cried in a loud voice to all the birds flying in midair, Come, gather together for the great supper of God so that they may eat the flesh of kings, generals and mighty men of horses and their riders and the flesh of all people, free, slaves, small and great. And then I saw the beast. That's the Antichrist and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against the rider on the horse and his army. They had their guns at each other, at Israel, and now they're going to point them at us. Well, guess what happens? But the beast was captured, and with him the false prophet, who had performed the miracle, miraculous signs on his behalf. With these signs, he has deluded those who had received the mark of the beast and worshipped his image. The two of them were thrown alive in the fiery lake of burning sulfur the lake of fire. They get in before Satan and his angels do. And by the way, for those of you who think annihilationism is the truth, that it's not, that when you die, you just don't exist, well, a thousand years after the millennial has happened, and Satan and his angels are released for, for one more rebellion, the Gog-Magog revolution, God puts it down, throws Satan and his angels in the lake of fire, guess who's already still there? Antichrist and the false prophet still suffering eternal condemnation. The rest of them were killed with the sword. That means war. That came, the, the sword of the execution of them by the omnipotence of Jesus Christ, his, the, sword, the sword of the Spirit is what? The Word of God. He's the incarnate Word of God, Jesus is. He speaks, and when he ex orders the execution of the Antichrist, it happens. When he destroys these armies, all he has to do is say the word. The rest of them were killed with a sword that came out of the mouth of the rider on the horse, and all the birds gorged themselves on their flesh. Then it says, no chapter break in the original, chapter 20, verse 1, and I saw an angel coming down out of heaven, having the key to the abyss, and holding in his hand a great chain, and he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil, or Satan, bound him for a thousand years. Isn't it interesting? There'll be no more war once he's gone. Want to know why we have war? And did you think and the people who are the bleeding hearts, who think they're going to they're going to keep abolish war from the face of the earth before Christ, talk about again the devil deceiving them? They're shaking their fist at God. No, God says you're going to have war. This is not a time of peace. That's coming, but we must have the the wrath of the Lamb during the tribulation period of the second advent before we can have this peace that we so so we want so much. So he threw him into the abyss, Satan. And he locked and sealed him, sealed it all over him to keep him from deceiving the nations anymore until the thousand years were ended. And after that, he must be set free for a short time. So, this, go back to Habakkuk chapter 3, verse 10. And we'll close. You look at my translation on the board. It says, having seen you, the mountains will tremble in fear. A torrential rain of waters will sweep through. The deep will raise its voice and it will lift its hands on high. Remember, he's using personification there. So the second prophetic statement asserts that, it, and solemnly, it asserts that torrential rain of waters will sweep through planet Earth at the second advent of Christ. And this uh, statement, unlike the others, doesn't employ the figure of personification. So this third prophetic statement solemnly asserts that the deep will raise its voice. It appears, this is interesting, it appears to be alluding to the worldwide flood which destroyed the antediluvian civilization in the days of Noah, recorded in Genesis 6 through 19, those chapters. And that's supported by the fact that the word tahom, the deep, that here, you see here in Habakkuk 3.10, appears in the flood account of Genesis 7.11 and Genesis 8.2. So we see here that this third prophetic statement in Habakkuk 3.10 is related to the third and final prophetic statement in Habakkuk 3.9. Remember it says this, your bowl will be removed from its sheath 
And speaking of the uh, breaking of the, the, uh, the seven seal scroll, where you have the, the seven seal trumpet bowl judgments, your arrows swore oaths to uphold your command, Selah. You will cause the earth to be split open with rivers. So as we noted in our study of this verse, the third and final prophetic statement in verse 9 solemnly asserts that the Lord Jesus Christ will cause the earth to be split open with rivers. Or in other words, it speaks of the Lord causing the earth to be flooded by causing rivers to overflow their banks, but this too is figurative language. And here it's figurative language for the armies of the tribulation, which like rivers will flood the earth. You know, if you looked at an army approaching, I remember the words the movie Patton, Remember Patton, and he's up there and rumbles on, and he's got the binoculars, and you can see it looked like a like a flood coming in across the desert with all these guys, the tanks and everything. Well, you look at an army from a high vantage point, you see like the Babylonian army, or you see the armies of the tribulation period descending on the, on the in the Valley of Jehoshaphat and all that. That whole area, the, the Armageddon campaign, right when it culminates in the Second Advent. Well, it's going to be looking like the, the earth is being flooded, but it's being flooded by men and materials and machinery horses, all kinds of things. So we see that this is figurative language. We saw this a couple of weeks ago in Daniel 9.26, where the word flood is, going to, is often used in the Old Testament for armies uh, fighting war, waging war and descending on a nation or a city. Revelation 12.15 also uses this language of comparing armies at war to a flood in the natural realm. So therefore, this is interesting, this third and final prophetic statement in Habakkuk 3.9 would indicate that the third prophetic statement in Habakkuk 3.10 is also prophetic. And it's also figurative language for the armies of the tribulation, which like rivers will flood the earth and oppose Jesus Christ at his second advent. And this interpretation, people, is further supported by that word, the deep, to home that's found in Habakkuk 3.10, as it's seen in the Genesis account, as they said, in two, two different parts, two different uh, passages. So this to home not only pertains to an area below the surface of bodies of water, a dark, inaccessible, inexhaustible, and mysterious place controlled by, only, by objects with vast powers, but also is an intense word. It's also, it also signifies raging or chaotic mass of water convulsing. It implies, but it implies anything but peace and order and uniformity. And the, what's interesting, there's no definite article. In English, the article is the... It's anathema's construction here, emphasizing the chaotic nature of the deep, which is symbolic of the enemies of the Lord Jesus Christ who will oppose him at his second advent. So therefore, the purpose of the figure of personification here in this third statement is to emphasize the chaos that will ensue among the enemies of Jesus Christ when he returns to earth at his second advent. So it's going to be absolute pandemonium chaos Nobody's ever seen anything like it because God himself has come down to, we were warned. We were warned. Those Christians were warning us through the century. We were warned. Guess what? He is coming back. It wasn't pie in the sky after all. Here he is. And he's coming to destroy us all. The fourth and final prophetic statement in Habakkuk 3.10 solemnly asserts that the deep will lift its hands on high. And this is prophetic for the utter terror and panic which the enemies of Jesus Christ will express when he returns to destroy them at his second advent. Therefore, the purpose of the figure of personification in this fourth statement is to utter, emphasize the utter terror and panic which the enemies of Christ will express when he returns to earth. Now, we must remember, as we close, as we noted in our study of Habakkuk 3.9, that the purpose, very important you understand this, the purpose of the seven seal trumpet and bowl judgments during the 70th week of Daniel, and the purpose of the second advent of Christ is to imprison Satan and his angels for a thousand years, destroy Antichrist and the false prophet, defeat the tribulational armies, deliver regenerate Jews and Gentiles. They're also designed to establish the kingdom of God on earth. This is where everything's headed, people. Right now, Jesus Christ sits at the right hand of the Father waiting for his enemies to be made a footstool for his feet. All the events, current events that are taking place and all the events that will happen leading up to the tribulation period of the, seventh, the second advent of Christ are all setting the stage for God establishing the kingdom on earth. And so this world, you know, you, thought, you think about this. You know, this world is a sad place. You look at it. Sad songs. People say, write sad songs. There's always, you know, 
I, I look back at my heroes, you know. Look, like for instance, this is talking about a fallen world. It's a, everything, is a dis, everything is a disappointment. Bill Belichick for 24 years, they got rid of him. But Brady left. You know? What happened? We had, we had, Saban left Alabama. Can't believe it. What's happening in the world? Sad things happen. People we admire, they die. They disappoint us. The world is when our country disappoints us. You know? We look at, uh, everything in our life, it just seems like, you know, like remember my father saying, when my brother Kenny died, and then he had, he just, we just lost, somebody else just passed away. It's like, it's just death, death, death. The world's filled with death. It's a miserable, miserable place without Jesus to give you some perspective in life. It makes me thank God that he saved my butt from myself and sin and Satan and gave me some perspective on what this is all about. We're at war. This is a place of disappointment. And, you know, there's all this, this, uh, this terrible things that go on in the world, the child abuse, the murders, the injustice, the stupid laws, the people that don't enforce the laws, that not enforcing the death penalty, people not getting justice for family members who were b- murdered brutally. And we don't, you know, children. I mean, how people you know, hurt a child. Suicides rampant like crazy throughout this country, not only among our young people, but a guy I went to, I found out yesterday, a guy I went to school with committed 60, uh, suicide in Louisiana where he lived. That's my age, 62. Committed suicide. It's all over the place in, this Amer- in America. And here we are, the wealthiest, richest nation in the face of the earth, and we can't find happiness and peace. Isn't that ironic? Yeah, of course you can't. You know what you're seeing with all this epidemic of suicides of our young people and older people and all this crazy stuff that's going on, the crazy policies and the the attitude in the world? It's because we rejected the gospel, we rejected the word of God, and we're going down the course of history, going into the toilet like the rest of these nations have in the past. We haven't learned our lesson here. But there's still hope for the world because we are the bride of Christ, the members of the body of Christ. God's trying to reach this world to give them peace, peace in their souls and peace to the world in the sense of Jesus Christ, the Prince of Peace. So you and I, we can look at this world in perspective. It's passing away. We're not to love the things of the world. 1 John 2, 15 through 17. We need to understand that God has a great plan for us and you're a big part of that plan of what he's trying to do now, trying to snatch people out of the lake of fire and from his wrath during the tribulation period and join his kingdom and get on the side that's going to win and has already won. And it's just a matter of time before the whole world sees what God can do and he's, he, he, what he can do to this earth and change it around because that's our only hope is our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ for this world. And that's, not, that's the truth. That's the word of God. And when he comes back at his second advent, starts the kingdom, we'll be praising him. We'll be rejoicing. We'll be, the songs will be about Jesus. Okay? Taylor Swift will not be number one in heaven on the millennial reign unless she's singing her songs about Jesus, writing songs about Jesus. The ones who are singing songs and writing songs about Jesus, and those are the ones are going to be top of the bill, the top 20. Okay? Those are the songs that are going to matter is the songs about Jesus because he's the only one that matters, the Prince of Peace, the King of Kings, and the Lord of Lords. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time to study your word. Thank you for everyone here. I pray this lesson be a mess, uh, an encouragement to your people. Instruction in righteous, rebuke if necessary, exhortation to go forward in your plan, knowing that we're going to reign over this earth one day with your son and help us to live our lives in a fashion that pleases you and brings glory and honor to you. In our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen.